All right, before Audrey um, gets up today, I thought I'd do a little bit of an intro uh, to our Bible reading for today. Uh, I'll try and project, and you can turn me up as loud as you like, uh, guys. I lived in Scotland for a year. This is but a Scottish mist, uh, really. I'll uh, try and battle against it. Uh, Well, those new uh, to Trinity here at Tonsley perhaps won't know uh, that my favourite genre to preach from is actually Old Testament narrative. And if it's your first time with us today, or perhaps you've been sick for a little while like many people have, or you've been out in kids' programs, you might not know that we're in week five of an eight-week series in the book of 1 Kings. And with Old Testament narrative, it can be hard just to jump up uh, into the Bible reading. So many things going on, unfamiliar places and unfamiliar names. And if you just jump straight in, uh, like I've been listening to the series uh, along online, like Cam said a few weeks ago, it can feel like you're jumping into episode five of season three of some sort of long-running drama on Netflix. So before we go to the Bible reading today, uh, this was really helpful for me to do and hopefully helpful for you. Here's the kind of Netflix kind of previously in Real Kings of Jerusalem kind of flashback uh, to let you know what's going on as we head into today's reading. As uh, one king started off, uh, King David handed over the reins to his son Solomon at the start of the book. And Solomon's reign kind of starts off pretty well. He's wise. Under his leadership, the temple is built in Jerusalem and he dedicates it. And God appears to him in chapter 9 and says, if you walk before me, as your father David did, with integrity and upright heart, following my commands, your throne will be established forever. And if not, if Solomon instead leads them off into worshipping other gods, uh, God says that Israel will be cut off, the people will be shamed, and this great temple will be torn down, and people from the surrounding nations will say, it is because they abandoned their God that all this has happened. So there's the kind of tension underlying one kings. So Solomon's reign continues. He grows in wealth. His wisdom becomes famous. He wrote many of the proverbs that we had in the Bible and in the kids' talk today. But he starts to engage in some questionable behaviour, which is kind of dismissed at the time. He starts amassing kind of great armies and wealth. And like many a leader, the combination of power and lust is one that brings him down. We're told that he loves many foreign women. He ends up with 700 wives and 300 concubines, which lead his heart away from the one true God to worshipping many false gods. God is understandably not pleased, so he raises up adversaries for Solomon And amidst them, and probably his most important enemy, is a guy named Jeroboam. Uh, He's one of Solomon's servants, a capable guy, who rises to a position of influence and power. And one day he's walking along the road, and a prophet, Ahijah, comes to meet him alone in the country. Ahijah takes off his robe, tears it into 12 pieces, and says to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces representing the ten tribes that God is going to tear from Solomon and his descendants because of his outrageous worshipping of other gods, not walking in God's ways and not doing what is right. 
Ahijah says Solomon is going to get only uh, Jerusalem, which is sort of part of the city-state belonging to Benjamin. It's kind of not mentioned in the narrative, and you can kind of be led to believe that the author of 1 Kings couldn't count to 12, but it's Benjamin and Judah kind of form the southern kingdom, and then the ten tribes in the north. And later Solomon dies, and Rehoboam, his son, begins to rule in his place. And so we come to today's reading where the big question is, what kind of transition of power is this going to be? Will Rehoboam do what is right and walk in God's ways and follow his statutes and rule well? And now, just a heads up, it's a little bit challenging for us as a reader because we have Jeroboam and Rehoboam featuring in the next story and it's pretty easy to get confused who's who. So my little memory aid this week to keep in mind who's who is to think of Royal Rehoboam. Think of the letter R. Royal Rehoboam, he's Solomon's son, the rightful heir. So when you hear Rehoboam, remember the letter R, Royal Rehoboam, and Jeroboam, he's the other one, he's the servant. And with that said, um, Audrey's going to come and read from 1 Kings 12 for us. So grab your Bible on the chairs, keep it open, open up your apps. Uh, um, Audrey's only going to read part of what we'll cover today, so you will need your Bible all the way throughout. It's always good practice to have your Bible open in front of you uh, as well. So over to you, Audrey. Thanks. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, Go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke and I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips, I will scourge you with scorpions. Three days later, Jeroboam and the people returned to Rehoboam, as the king had said, come back to me in three days. The king answered the people harshly. Rejecting the advice given to him by the elders, he followed the advice of the men and said, My father make your yoke heavy, I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips, I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for this turn of events was from the Lord, to fulfill the word the Lord has spoke to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ahijah, the Shilonite. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king. 
What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel, look after your own house, David. So the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. King Rehoboam sent out Adoniram, who is in charge of forced labor, but all Israel stoned him to death. King Rehoboam, however, managed to get into his chariot and escape to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. When all the Israelites heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. Only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the house of David. When Rehoboam arrived in Jerusalem, he mustered all Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 able young men, to go to war against Israel and to regain the kingdom for Rehoboam, son of Solomon. But this word of God came to Shehemiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all Judah and Benjamin and to the rest of the people. This is what the Lord says. Do not go up to fight against your brothers, the Israelites. Go home, every one of you, for this is my doing. So they obeyed the word of the Lord and went home again as the Lord had ordered. Well, thanks, Audrey. Um, We come to today's passage, I think, well-placed to think through the implications of a handover of power like this. As a state and then federally, we've just had a round of elections uh, where whoever you voted for, I hope you were thankful, like me, for a peaceful transition of power. Many nations only dream of such an orderly transition where a guy we know as ScoMo graciously admits defeat Uh, and uh, steps back and hands over the reins to a guy we call Albo, who thanks ScoMo, who then hands over the reins to the Liberal Party in the week just gone, again peacefully, to Peter Dutton, who we'll know has settled in the job when we start calling him Dutto. (laughs) We used to take such peaceful transitions of power for granted in the West, but increasingly it's not quite such a given as shown in the USA with the deadly storming of the Capitol building by some pretty well-armed protesters whipped into a frenzy as Donald Trump handed over to Joe Biden. And with a lot less at stake, uh, much of the world is also watching on a much slower transition of power as we celebrate the Queen's 70th Jubilee, with many openly asking whether or not the royal family will survive the transition from Queen Elizabeth to Prince Charles? Or with declining power, will it fold in the coming years and decades like so many royal families have in countries around the world? Sometimes peacefully and sometimes with bloodshed. All people everywhere care who rules over them because it affects the way we live. Because those in power have uh, power to shape so much of our lives. So we're all sitting here today thinking, well, how will this new government deal with the rise in the cost of living? What's going to happen with taxes, housing prices, the health system? How will Penny Wong and the government deal with all the issues with China in the South Pacific? And as we think of leaders, we're generally kind of repulsed by leaders who use their power for their own glory. 
yet we're drawn to people who risk losing it all for the sake of others to make a meaningful and lasting difference to those who have little power in our world. And just considering these things for a moment helps us kind of get in the mindset and transport ourselves back to the tension that would have been in the air after Solomon's death, as people waited to see how Rehoboam would wield power. And as we dive into the story, there's much we can learn from living wisely in our own days. And my hope is that we can enlarge our love and appreciation for our own King Jesus, and particularly today in the way he uses power. And if you're here today checking out who Jesus is, welcome. We're really glad you're here. We plant new churches like this with the goal of sharing who Jesus is with many and sharing why we love him and why we willingly and joyfully live under Jesus' gracious rule. So my hope for you today is that you'll understand some new things about how God has worked through history and that you'll also appreciate new things about Jesus and be drawn to him. We're heading into kind of a new section now of 1 Kings and with some notable exceptions to the rule, the general trajectory from here is downwards from Solomon onwards as we press through 1 Kings into 2 Kings. And as the coming uh, sort of spate of kings, kind of good use of power decreases, God, you'll see, increasingly raises up wise prophets to hold them to account and to declare to the people that faithful living is still possible amidst all the chaos that ensues. And against this backdrop, as the whole country waits to see what kind of ruler Rehoboam will be, as so much depends of it, we read that the whole country heads to Shechem for the coronation of Rehoboam as king. And as Jeroboam, living in Egypt due to his fear of Solomon that we read about last week, hears of all of this, he returns and he's sent for by the people who still hold him in some esteem, it seems, and they go to Rehoboam together, the whole country, Jeroboam included, and in verse 4, say, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labour and heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam says, well, I'll think about it. Come back in three days. So can you kind of imagine the tension in the air as so many from Israel, kind of, I assume at least representatively, all of Israel gathers, they're camping out under the stars, awaiting to see how Rehoboam will use power. What will Solomon's son Rehoboam do? Uh, we see in the book of uh, Proverbs, where so much of Solomon's wisdom from his early days is recorded, we often see this kind of beautiful picture of a father teaching his son quite literally, Solomon to Rehoboam what it means to live and rule with the wisdom of God. Will he follow the wisdom of God, knowing Proverbs close to his heart like Proverbs 8, 15 to 17? We'll just pop it up on the screen. Thanks, Rob. Will he kind of come with this worldview where God says in Proverbs 8, by me kings reign, and rulers issue decrees that are just. By me, says God, princes govern and nobles, all who rule the earth. 
I love those who love me, and those who seek me find me. Will he embody the wisdom that made Solomon so famous in his early years from Proverbs like uh, Proverbs 11 verse 17? Those who are kind benefit themselves, but the cruel bring ruin upon themselves. Will Rehoboam kind of listen to, you know, as the son to one of the wisest guys who ever lived? Will he uh, listen to his father from his early years or will he follow the particularly bad example of his father in his latter years, using his power to lay a heavy yoke on his people for his own riches and glory? Rehoboam consults the elders who have served under Solomon and asks them uh, what they'll do. And their wisdom, verse 7 in today's passage, is insightful. They replied... If today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favourable answer, they will always be your servants. These elders knew something that has remained true in God's wisdom, that to lead is to serve for the sake of others. Whereas the younger men, who you can kind of imagine them rolling with Jeroboam for many years, effectively say, let's turn up the heat on how much we expect from the people and strike fear into their hearts. So when the three days are up, the people come before Rehoboam, who we read in verse 13, answered the people harshly, rejecting the elders of the vice and following kind of the script given by the young men saying to all the people, can you imagine standing there, all of Israel gathered, the new king stands up and says, my father made your yoke heavy, I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips, I will scourge you with scorpions. Can you just imagine what that would have felt like? And there is the soundbite to define Rehoboam's rule. You can imagine it kind of lighting up Twitter across the country, as the country ponders whether it will kind of sit easily under Rehoboam's rule, you can imagine the kind of core flute signs on every second tree uh, around the country with, just like they do these days, with the unflattering painting of Rehoboam with a double chin holding a, a whip in one hand and a scorpion in the other, with a Liberal ta Party tagline, something along the lines like, life won't be ho-hum under Rehoboam. <laughs> It doesn't rhyme easily. I challenge you to find a better one. I mean, I find Bill Shorten's zingers funny, so it's perhaps not a high bar to jump over. But you can kind of, like, this is the tagline that defines Rehoboam's rule. And the people declare their dissatisfaction with their hereditary line of David and their desire to depart, saying to the king, verse 16, like, here's a way to bring some tension, what share do we have in David? That's kind of saying, what share do we have in the royal lion? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel. Look after your own house, David. And they head home. For those in Judah and Benjamin alongside it, where the king ruled from Jerusalem, Rehoboam, sort of the southern sort of uh, part of the kingdom, Rehoboam rules there. But as he looks north, he kind of decides to roll out with his strongman, Adoniram, to subdue the ten northern tribes. And as we read, his kind of hard man with him is killed, 
and the king only escapes back to Jerusalem thanks to some pretty epic chariot driving. So I can imagine kind of the chase through the streets here as he gets back into the city. And the ten northern tribes, now referred to as Israel, remain in rebellion to Rehoboam, now ruling in the south, kind of known from this point as Judah. Israel makes Jeroboam, the servant, king, and Rehoboam returns to the south and starts gathering 180,000 troops to go to war with the north. But then the most unexpected thing happens. A prophet, a man of God who we don't hear of elsewhere, Shemaiah, arises and God says to him, verse 23, Say to Rehoboam, son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all Judah and Benjamin and all the rest of the people, this is what the Lord says. Do not go up to fight against your brothers, the Israelites. Go home, every one of you, for this is my doing. And to, I don't know if you're as shocked as I am when you kind of read that, to our surprise, Rehoboam and all the people actually listen and everyone goes home. Further bloodshed is averted. Now, this is pretty unusual. It, it kind of prompts the question, what could possibly have convinced the people as Shemaiah speaks God's words into the situation to the people of Judah to actually just kind of step down from war footing and go home? I suspect it's the last five words that we have recorded there from God to the people where God says this whole thing, for this is my doing. God is saying this whole rebellion of the ten northern tribes, I did that, I'm in control, this is my doing. Now, it must have rocked their world. <laughs> The country splitting in two, the, the nation that God chose to bear his name in the world, whom he revealed himself to, who he had made an everlasting covenant to, split in two by rebellion and being told the sovereign God did it. Now, this shouldn't surprise us as the reader today. We've been kind of watching the story so far with kind of like the director's commentary turned on. We heard in verse 15 that as Rehoboam answers the people harshly, we read, So the king did not listen to the people, for this turn of events was from the Lord to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Abijah the Shionite. That was kind of back in chapter 11 last week. Ahijah, a robe-tearing prophet that I included in the recap, all of this is taking place because God is tearing ten tribes from Solomon's line of hereditary rule. What appears to be utter chaos in the kingdom of God, bitterly tearing the nation in two, is God's work. God remains totally in control. And there's much for us to ponder here but before we do, let's have a brief look at Jeroboam. We didn't read this far, so have your Bibles in front of you. Remember, if, 
Uh, you were here last week. God spoke to him, Jeroboam, through Abijah back in chapter 11:38, and he said, if you do whatever I command, I think I might have this on screen actually, uh, or maybe I don't. Um, anyway, this is what he said to Abijah uh, in chapter 11:38. He said, if you do whatever I command you and walk in obedience to me, and in do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and commands, as David my servant did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. So hopefully it's becoming pretty clear as you've moved through one kings. The role of a king is to walk in obedience to God, doing right in his own eyes. And as in any role of leadership, the reason you ask leaders to do that is because you want all the people to follow. That was the role of God's people then, and it is the role of God's people today, to walk in obedience to God, obeying his decrees. So what does Jeroboam do? Well, let's have a look from verse 25 on. After fortifying a few things, practical necessities, working out where he's going to live, he says, verse 26, Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David if these people go up to offer sacrifices to the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. They, you know, he's kind of, they'd be crossing territory from the north to the south. So he sees this and sort of thinks, well, they will again give their allegiance to the Lord Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. And to our horror, we read that he makes two golden calves and says to the people, here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. What is disguised as a sympathetic concern for people having to walk too far to worship God is simply a political manoeuvre. Jeroboam likewise does not trust in God's promises and has no intent to walk in his ways. Jeroboam, like many after him, will profess faithfulness to God simply because he finds God useful to meet his own ends. Things decline further as Jeroboam simply makes up a religious system, re-establishing shrines to other gods in the high places, appointing pretty much anyone who puts their hand up to be a priest, writing a new religious calendar of festivals to make people feel like they're not missing out on what's going on in Judah, offering sacrifices to golden calves. And as you read how this chapter closes, it's all about the months kind of Jeroboam chooses for all this. It's all about the altars he makes, his festivals, run by the guys he puts in place. He completely rejects God's revealed will about the place, time, and people required to sacrifice and worship to him. Politics triumphs. God's will, his revealed will, is completely ignored. Now, if you've been with us in this series, you'll probably have got the viable ready that the kings in our stories have many shortcomings and point us to the need of our greater King Jesus. But there are so many facets to explore on why that is the case. 
so many angles from which we can appreciate new things about Jesus. And the most obvious, I think, from today's passage is that as Jesus strode this earth, he started a revolution when it comes to wielding power. It rocked the very foundation of how power works in our world when he said, Mark 10, I might have this one up on the screen, Rob. I should have made notes to myself on these things. Uh, Mark 10, 42. This is Jesus speaking now. He said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. Instead, speaking to his disciples, he says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I think it might not seem as radical as it first did. Uh, Such has Jesus' influence been over many years since he first said this. You think of someone like where... Uh, Many of us are celebrating the Queen's 70th Jubilee. Many would say she's been a picture of a life dedicated to service. Someone whose life has been shaped by Jesus. Yet as Jesus' influence in public life recedes, such as kind of the time that we live in, and the powerful once again increasingly kind of use their resources to benefit the powerful rather than the weak, whether it's a strongman dictator in Russia, a schoolyard bully, American or Australian political parties or corporate giants, I think Jesus' way will once again become more radical and we as his church need to be willing to risk the power that we have, as much as that might be declining, not for our own sake or self-protection, but to actually risk it all for the sake of others. To proclaim to our world that its only real hope lies in a day yet to come where all glory, all honour and power are in the hands of Jesus, the one who serves. What a humble act that Jesus, with the power to command creation to raise the dead, to call on an army of angels at his time of need, allowed himself to be nailed to a cross to serve us, dying for our sins so that we could be purchased for God. What a servant. What a wonderful saviour who redefines greatness in his kingdom, who used their power, large or small, to serve others. As we think of what lessons we have to learn from our kind of three kings that we've looked at today, Jesus shows us what Rehoboam missed, servant leadership. Rehoboam's elders told him point blank, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favourable answer, they will always be your servants. But there's much more to ponder from our story of Rehoboam. 
there's a tension in this story that we note that actually flows right across the Bible. How is it that Rehoboam freely makes a pretty dumb decision and is held responsible for it, yet at the same time, God's revealed will is done? That God uses such bad decisions to tear ten tribes from him as planned. As the Apostle Peter preaches many years later in Pentecost, that same tension is at play that the Jews and the Romans responsible for Jesus' unjust trial and execution are held responsible for it, but at the same time are executing the defined plan revealed in the foreknowledge of God. That it was God's plan all along that Jesus our Saviour would head to the cross in such a way. There's much to explore there about the absolute sovereignty of God's power and overall it should be a great comfort to the believer as we consider our own lives in the time in which we live. We can trust in God's promises to build his church. I think sometimes when people see uh, disunity in the church today or conflict, we naturally assume something is wrong. I would go as far as to say uh, sometimes it's a good thing to kind of separate those and who will willingly follow in God's ways, attending to his word, seeking to follow his decrees, from those who are in open rebellion to do so. I don't think we need to assume something is wrong. I think we should assume God's sovereign power is still at work and be attentive to our own church, our own lives, our own understanding of the Bible, that we are doing what we can to be attentive to God's words and to God's ways, knowing that God is sovereign, sometimes even in chaos, like he was as he separated the ten tribes of the north from the south, as he sometimes separates those who claim the name Christian today. As I pondered Jeroboam this week, to me he seems emblematic of leaders across time who seek to claim allegiance to God, not because they love him, but because they deem him useful for their own ends. Some in politics still deem it useful to seek to win the conservative vote by appealing to God, yet we want to be discerning, is this person doing so because they love God or is it simply because they find God useful as they try to gain power? Consider too the church leader's heart. Are they driven by serving our King Jesus who came to serve or are they desiring power? As a church network, we have a great gospel ambition to see many come to know the life and eternity-changing good news about Jesus who laid down his life to purchase people for God. We have great ambitions for this church. We have room to grow. We have plans to uh, reach out to many and young adults and uni students and youth and all people in the area. There's great gospel ambition behind this church. 
But you have to acknowledge the danger up front that almost imperceptibly, it's easy for that gospel ambition to morph into a quest for building our own kingdom, our own regard, our own influence. We must be people attentive to the heart who cultivate a heart that loves Jesus, that follow him in serving others and expect to see humble servants shepherding the flock, not powerful leaders. And in an age where false teaching is but a podcast away, watch your own hearts too, looking out for the Jeroboams who offer an easy religion, asking little of you other than your devotion to them, so that they can have the podcast, the books, the esteem, the life of luxury and ease, while selling you a religion that costs you little, fooling you into thinking that it's okay to live a self-centred life and that by following them, you really are on about the things of God. And from our third King Jesus, what can we take from today? What can we appreciate about him for the first time or maybe refreshed in for the first time in a long time? For me, as I reflected on the heavy yoke Rehoboam placed on his people, causing this whole mess, it brought Jesus' words to mind, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus, as he used his limitless power to serve us, lifts from us the burden of sin. Jesus lifts from us the weariness of living in the shadow of death. He doesn't offer a life of ease, but being his is easy. He's paid the price for our sin to give us a place in his family forever. If you're considering Jesus for the first time, he calls you to come to him. He is gentle, humble in heart, and in finding rest for your souls. Jesus is a great king to live for. And in a time where so many have been giving uh, so much of your time, your finances, your gifts, and your heart as we've planted this new church together, don't fall into the trap of moving from that joy and excitement into a sense of duty as the kind of newness of all of this wanes. Remember who you're serving. Be encouraged by the reminder that our King, who will one day have all glory and honour, is the one who serves. And until the day when we all see glory and power rightly used as the true servant King... We serve him today out of love, our gentle king, our humble king, our servant King Jesus. Love for Christ really is the death of duty so that we can serve him joyfully from the heart and for all of our days until we see him face to face. Let's close today in prayer. <laughs> Dear Heavenly Father, thanks so much for your word to us. Uh, thank you so much for the book of 1 Kings 
and uh, what we can see about how power is used in our world. And we thank you so much for the contrast it provides to the way Jesus uses power, uh, the revolution he started as he came not to be served, but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many, heading willingly to the cross to serve us, to lift from us the heavy burden of sin, the weariness of living under the shadow of death so that we can serve him knowing that we are yours now and forever. Please help us to serve the one who serves joyfully from the heart and to be a church that is always humbly submitting to your word and to your revealed will, seeking to walk in your ways all of our days as we follow our great King and most wonderful Saviour, Jesus. And it's in his precious and very powerful name we pray. Amen.